You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Dr. Carl Qualls to discuss his research into the Spanish child refugees that would make their way to the Soviet Union during the Spanish Civil War. These children would have unique experiences during their time within the Soviet Union, first expected to be only a few months, but which turned into years, and then for some, into decades. Many of them would never be able to openly return to Spain, and the Soviet Union would become their new home. As always, you can find out more information about Dr. Qual's book, Stalin's Ninos, on the website at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash interviews, where you can also find information about all the people who have joined us for the Spanish Civil War interview series. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Carl Qualls, the author of Stalin's Niños, Educating Spanish Civil War Refugee Children in the Soviet Union, 1937 to 1951, which looks at the experiences of the almost 3,000 child refugees who made their way to the Soviet Union during the Spanish Civil War. Dr. Qualls, how's it going today? Pretty well. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. For those of you who, of course, you do not know, we are recording this on election day in the United States. So it's a uh, it's, it's quite an event for me in America. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. So when the children that, that would go to the Soviet Union were being ready to make the journey, how were they selected? Was there a specific set of criteria or was it uh, luck, basically? Uh, it wasn't luck for most of them. Um, there were a number of uh, civic and governmental and, and political party organizations that did some of the pre-selecting. Um, the Soviets were pretty... Um, up front that they didn't want any children from the nationalist cause. They wanted children from the left. And that's essentially what they got. Um, as you know, and your readers will probably know, the, the Spanish left is very fragmented. Uh, it's kind of an alphabet soup of political parties. And so the Soviets did get some children from political groups that they were not expecting, particularly anarchists. Um, but most of them were one communist party or another, several socialist parties and things like that. But even then, the Basque uh, Communist Party, which, you know, this is probably the largest group of Ninos, um, they were still Catholic, and that just didn't make sense to the Soviets. Um, but they, they were being selected by these groups, and in some cases, some schools almost uh, en masse uh, were put on the ships and sent to the Soviet Union. So there was some coordination. It wasn't exactly um, without problem, uh, but it wasn't a complete happenstance either. 
Okay. And you mentioned they were getting on ships. So uh, the Soviet Union is, is a little far away from, from Spain. Yes. <laughs> so how did they, they physically get to Russia? Um, I'm assuming they were on some trains at some point? So there's, um, there's two different uh, points, of, points of embarkation. So the first journey is um, in the 21st of March, 1937, just about just over 70 uh, children. And these are from more privileged families, pilots, party members and whatnot. And they go through the Mediterranean and the Black Sea and end up in um, the Crimean Peninsula in Yalta. Um, the vast majority of the group, there's almost 3,000 in total that go to the Soviet Union, they end up in Leningrad or today's St. Petersburg. And they leave from the North Coast, uh, so the Basque country. And that's why we have so many uh, Basque and Astorian children in the Soviet Union. Um, oftentimes they will first uh, port in France um, and those ships are sometimes divided. Some of those will stay in France. Some go on to Santh Southampton, England, uh, and then others to Leningrad. Uh, and there's a couple of these uh, more official uh, journeys, one on the 12th of June, 1937, one on the 24th of September, 1937, uh, and then another year later in October, 1938, we have the last uh, 300. Okay. And what what was life like for these children in the Soviet Union? Were they growing up separately? Were they in group homes or were they together? Yeah, they actually have a very privileged uh, life. And I think this is what really differentiates them from the, the other child refugees from the Spanish Civil War who go to different countries is the Soviet Union takes um, full responsibility for their upkeep. Um, unlike England, I know you, you've been doing some interviewing on that. Um, where the government did not want them and did not give any aid to the children. The Soviet Union paid full fare. All their schooling, um, all their medical care, uh, all their vacations, everything was fully paid by the government. Uh, the vast majority of them lived in 22 boarding schools that were created for them. The oldest children lived in boarding schools in the center of major cities uh, like Kiev, uh, Moscow, and Leningrad. Moscow and Leningrad having the most schools. Uh, the younger children live in the suburbs of those major cities um, where there's lots of parks and rivers and forests to play in and, and fresh air uh, as well to, to breathe. Um, the, although they're boarding schools exclusively for the Spanish children, they're not isolated from Soviet children. Um, in some cases, they're in the same school building as the Soviet children, so they would see them, certainly. Um, and there are lots of events um, connecting the Spanish and the Soviet children. So as soon as they disembark in Leningrad, for example, the young pioneers, which is kind of like um, for the uh, American audience, the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts combined, um, there's no gender difference there. They're there um, waiting for the, the children to, to walk down the gangplank um, and are greeting them with uh, hugs and kisses and songs and flowers and chocolates and those kind of things. They're meeting up in uh, football or soccer, soccer tournaments um, they're in uh, resorts together for vacations. So they're not completely isolated, but they do in their, their boarding schools, they're growing up as, as a unit. Um, and actually they call it their family. And I, I think that really gives us a sense of how fond they were uh, of these boarding schools. Um, some of them actually uh, recall years later that when two um, former Ninos uh, married each other, that were from the same house, they considered it to be an incestuous relationship because they're some from the same, quote, family, because they grew up in the same boarding school. So they have really fond memories of this, uh, this care um, and the largesse that the Soviet Union provides, uh, food that they have never seen and quantities that they've never seen, 
Um, and in fact, the, the, the budget for these homes was much higher than, um, than Soviet schools. So they really were a privileged group, even though, you know, later when the war comes to the Soviet Union, life is tough. Um, it's still not as tough as it was for, for Soviet children or, or Soviet adults. So what, what would be the age range of the children that we're talking about here uh, that made this journey? Um, the vast majority of them are between 5 and 14. Um, they wanted them to be about 5 to 12 years old. Uh, some kids snuck on <laughs> the ships or were, were snuck onto the ships uh, a little bit younger or older. The idea is they don't want um, older adolescents. Uh, they want them to be able to go into these boarding schools and kind of learn in the way that the Soviets want them to. But they also didn't want um, tiny children, uh, infants and toddlers, uh, because these kids are coming without their parents. There are Spanish adults, as is the case in, in other countries they go to, who act as teachers and minders and things like that. No priests <laughs> has happened in, in other countries. Um, so they do have the adults, but they don't have parents. Um, and so they didn't want the really young ones, and they didn't want the older ones who um, might be harder to train. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned uh, schooling. So I, I know that a big part of childhood in the Soviet Union was, was schooling. How were these children educated? Like, what was the philosophy guiding their education? And how did Soviet authorities try to, like, balance their Spanish heritage with the fact that they were now living in, in the Soviet Union? Yeah, and this was really the, the delicate ba balance, Leslie, um, because we, we have to remember also that the Spanish Communist Party is headquartered in Moscow at this point. Um, and so there is this tension between them being Spanish and them being raised in the way that other Soviet children would. So the first couple of years, 1937 to 39, it's, it's really one of just settling in and getting healthy. A lot of these kids are, are terribly malnourished. They have tuberculosis, uh, avitaminosis, all kinds of things, um, and, and learning to study. And so this is both their, um, their language, and these kids are only be, being taught um, Castilian Spanish and not Basque. Um, also learning Russian, which they, uh, most of them, certainly the younger ones pick up uh, quite quickly. Um, after that, 39, when um, the Civil War ends, not in their favor, because these are leftist children, children of the Republic, um, but also the Second World War begins, we see a shift in the education a little bit in which um, more Spaniards are removed from the boarding schools and more of the staff is Soviet. And so this is kind of an inflection point that I see in which the, the balance tilts from raising them as Spaniards in another country to raising them in what I call a, a, a Hispano-Soviet hybrid model. So their education, they, they continue to learn Spanish language throughout their years in the boarding schools. They learn Spanish history very selectively. Um, they learn Spanish geography, which is really important. And then uh, Spanish literature. Um, but the Spanish literature is very carefully selected. It needs to kind of represent the ethos that the Soviet Union is trying to get at. Um, so dealing with things like uh, camaraderie, uh, heroes of the people, things like that. But then they also can't ignore people like Cervantes and Lopez de Vega, right? They have this, uh, this need for the classics as well. So that's their Spanish education. That goes all the way through. Um, starting in 1939 or so, um, their education becomes more Sovietized. That is, they're learning the same curriculum that any Soviet child would. So there's a special group of, of schools in the Soviet Union that they call non-Russian schools. So this is schools for the children who are not native Russian speakers, right? It's a, it's a very polyglot country. And so um, in non-Russian schools, one learns everything in their, in their host tongue, in their, excuse me, in their native tongue, um, and then learn Russian as a, as a second language. So that's what's happening at 
the youngest levels. And then as we progress through what we would consider to be kind of middle or high school or upper school, um, more and more of the classes are being taught in Russian. But you'd be learning um, history, ge geography, politics, and the politics is obviously uh, based around Marxism and the, the kind of international ethos uh, that the Soviets are trying to teach. Um, but otherwise, it, it looks like a pretty standard curriculum of, of reading and writing and arithmetic. Excellent. So, so you mentioned that there's this shift as the, the war kind of gets to its end point. And I know that, um, you know, speaking with about other refugee children, there was a lot of government pressure to like get these kids back to Spain. Obviously, yeah. Franco wanted them to come back, uh, but also governments wanted them kind of out of their countries. Uh, was there similar pressure put on the Soviet Union to get them back to Spain as quickly as possible, uh, especially given the much more antagonistic relationship between the Soviet Union and, and Franco. Yeah, I mean, Franco, Franco calls them the stolen children, which isn't correct. I mean, the parents were making this decision because they feared for their life. Right? We have to remember that the, the, um, the major groups of children that are evacuated are evacuated just after Guernica is bombed by the Nazis. Um, so they fear for their life. They're living, you know, just, uh, you know, tens or a few hundred miles away from, from Guernica. So this was a choice the parents are making, a, a, a very painful choice, um, much like the British case. They thought they would be there for a few months uh, and then come back home. Uh, that wasn't the case. Um, so, yeah, uh, Franco definitely wants them to return. Um, both the Soviet government and the Spanish Communist Party leaders uh, say that is simply not in their best interest. And a lot of that is because the the way that they were being brought up in these boarding schools. So outside of classroom, right, they're, they're learning the Marxism and things that wouldn't, wouldn't uh, um, sit well with uh, Francoists. Um, but they're also learning what we call Vospitania in Russian. So this is kind of like the child rearing practices. So it's kind of disciplinary behaviors. And a lot of these um, would be frankly quite dangerous um, if they returned to Spain. So um, they're learning, learning to be good atheists, for example, and they returning to a, to a, um, a country that is, you know, quasi ruled by the Catholic church just would not sit well. They're learning that, um, gender should not be a major category of discrimination. These young girls in particular, uh, as they get older, they're being trained in medicine and engineering where in Spain that simply wouldn't be, uh, possible. So the, um, the Spaniards, the Spanish government, um, the nationalist government definitely wants them to return, um, but it's nearly impossible for them to do so and, um, one, be comfortable in that environment um, because they have learned a different perspective, one that's not hyper-nationalist, which uh, Franco's new government was, but one that is internationalist one that doesn't believe in the primacy of church, but believes in the primacy of class. And so their, their whole way of thinking and their way of behaving uh, as well had been uh, changed through these, um, through the attention to um, how one thinks and relates to other human beings. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, were, were any number of them actually sent back after the Civil War was over? Like, or, or were they all uh, staying? Um, none were none were sent back against their will. Um, the we have we have none sent back immediately after the Civil War. So, for example, um, in Britain, um, almost all of them, right? And you know, I think it's like two hundred, three hundred, something like that, um, don't return in mm-hmm. nineteen thirty nine. They shove them back real fast. Real fast, absolutely. In the Soviet Union, it's the complete opposite. Okay. We have a very small number going back um, at the end of the Second World War. Um, and I'm talking literally a, a handful or two okay. handfuls. Um, it's really in the not, mid 1950s that they start going back in large numbers. Um, so about half of them return to Spain in the mid 1950s, but half of that half immediately return to the Soviet Union because they realize that um, their whole worldview is the opposite of the Franco regime, and they're they're facing persecution, and their families are split up in a lot of cases because. A lot of the Spaniards, as they grew up, um, they uh, they married with uh, Soviet citizens. Many of them became citizens of, of themselves. Um, Soviet men could not leave to Spain, but Soviet women could. So if it's a Spanish woman leaving for Spain, she has to leave her husband behind and maybe some children as well. And so it's, it's, um, it's breaking up families again and the trauma they already suffered um, leaving their families, although almost all of them left with a sibling or a cousin or something like that, um, leaving behind the familiar for a second time and moving to a world that they have been taught for their entire school age and, and beyond was the antithesis of everything, everything humanity could be, right? Because remember, it's the Soviet Union that is leading the, the fight against fascism. That's why the Soviet Union gets involved in the Spanish Civil War. They had been taught that the ruling government is is um was was the beginning of the second world war right it was the rise of fascism and the spanish civil war and the second world war were the was the great break of history 
in which countries have to stand up to fascism. So going back to that, that fascist country was, um, was very uncomfortable. Um, some did it, did it, some made their way. Uh, there's one story, this, this uh, man who goes back and he'd been very well trained, uh, even though he has a double amputee um, during the war in a train accident, he went back to Spain, uh, having been trained as, I think it was a radiologist. And Franco was very ill at this point in the 70s. And guess who was doing the chest x-rays of Franco? Was this former Spanish refugee child. And he said, I couldn't tell him because I probably would have been arrested. <laughs> and he, he actually snuck back into the country illegally. So there's a whole lot of reasons not to, to out himself. Um, and I guess like the, the younger half of the kids, uh, by the time you get to the end of the Second World War, probably have only tiny or no memories of life in Spain. Correct. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things, and I, I don't, I don't look at their lives in uh, Spain all that much. I have mm -hmm. a colleague who is, uh, who's working on that. Um, I'm guessing that for those who left and stayed in Spain, those were probably the older children that came to the Soviet Union, <laughs> right? Because they were raised outside of the boarding schools for most of their life. Uh, you know, they're still stoviatized to a degree at the, at the work site. But the youngest kids is all they knew. Mm -hmm. So if they came in 1937 at five years old, by the end of the war, they're 13, right? So the vast majority of their life has been spent in the Soviet Union. All of their education has been spent in the Soviet Union. That's what they know. That's home. And they they often talk. They use this language in the in the oral histories and the memoirs of having two homelands, because they they understand that they came from a different place, right? They have this language that doesn't really fit in in the Soviet Union, um, but yet all of their sensibilities, their ways of thinking and behaving truly are Soviet. And so it's really hard to, to look at this as, as one group, um, because if one was, say, 13 um, when she came to the, to the Soviet Union, you have one year in school, right? School ends at, at, at age 14 for, for most children, um, except for the, the very um, highly um, academically adept students. So you might have one year and then you're off to, to a factory to, to work somewhere. You don't get that, um, that acculturation in the same way that a four-year-old would who then spends 10 years in those institutions that are every day training you um, to view the world in a, in a way that is very different perhaps than, than the way you were, you were brought up. So I think there are, there are some really interesting generational differences uh, amongst this group. And it probably had a lot to do with the way they were able to adapt later returning to Spain. Um, some then return also after, after Franco is dead, thinking that it's going to be more acceptable. Um, and then another group after 1991, when the Soviet Union collapses um, and the economy just goes in the toilet in the nineties and eventually Spain um, says, okay, you know, we'll actually give you a pension uh, if you come back. And so there's a, a bunch of different waves, but the biggest one is in the, in the middle of the 1950s. Um, so, so we have multiple different sort of time periods, but then of course in, you know, 1941, an event occurs and yes. the Germans invade. Um, so these were obviously very turbulent times for anybody living in the Soviet Union. So what sort of happened with these children during, you know, those, those early war years when there was a lot of, I would call it chaos. I don't know if that's too strong of a word or not. No, I think that's about right. <laughs> Um, right. So these, these children, these boarding schools were all in what we call the European Soviet Union. So west of the, of the Ural Mountains. This means closest to the front lines as the, uh, as the Germans invade. So they like um, all the factories and, and many of the children, Soviet children in that area are evacuated. 
Um, these are very long journeys, um, poorly planned journeys. Um, and oftentimes their teachers, particularly male teachers, don't follow them because uh, the male teachers are, are being called up or volunteering uh, for the fight. So to give you uh, an example, probably the longest journey um, would happen from Leningrad or St. Petersburg today to Sam Samarkand, uh, Uzbekistan, which is 2,600 miles by rail. That's about the same distance uh, that they would have traveled to get to the Soviet Union by ship uh, when they left in 1937. This journey sometimes took 20, 30 days because they would get to a city, think this is where they're supposed to stop, and the local officials would say, no, you, we don't have any, any place for you. you. You have to move on. There, there was no um, kind of set destination. So they kept being moved along and moved along further and further to the east. And they arrived in very inhospitable, uh, inhospitable conditions uh, for the most part. A, a very large group of them ends up in, uh, in central Russia along the Volga River in a place called Saratov. Um, and this is where a group that we call the Volga Germans, they had come at the end of the 18th century, Captain the Great had brought them to basically be farmers in this, uh, this new land. Um, and they're German speakers. And so the Soviets were evacuating, no, evacuating is not the right word, displacing them as potential collaborators with the Nazis. Um, the Spaniards were supposed to move into their homes and their schools and stuff, but the, the Volga Germans had not left yet. And so the Spanish children arrive the Volga Germans are not happy about giving up their property, uh, apparently are throwing things uh, at some of the children. Um, but then some of the children all, also report that it wasn't so bad. Um, but the, also the, the KGB or the predecessor to the KGB uh, was lying to them. So, for example, they were told, according to a couple of the, the Nino's recollections, that they weren't supposed to eat any of the food that they found in Saratov. And remember, they're not traveling with food. So these kids are really, really hungry after a long journey. Um, you know, the, because these Volga Germans have poisoned it because they're Germans, right? Um, and these kids are so hungry, they're like, to heck with it, right? We're going to eat it because we have to. And they eat it and they don't get sick. And like, wait a minute, we've been lied to. And so for some of them, that was like a moment in their head. It's like, wait a minute, right? this, at least part of this regime is not telling us the truth. Um, but, you know, the, they're, they're arriving in the, in the fall, uh, sometimes the early winter in these places, um, they don't have food. They don't have the heating fuel they needed. Uh, so the kids are, are learning uh, or trying to learn in school and their ink, right? That back in the day when they had ink wells, uh, the ink is frozen. They don't have textbooks. Um, they're bundled up in their, their, cold, their coats and mittens and, and uh, hats all day. Um, a couple different kids tell exactly the same story in, in different um, recollections of uh, finding a dead camel. Apparently, it was a blind camel that couldn't find food in the snow, and they butchered the camel and ate it. Uh, another kid, uh, tell, apparently he was a bad boy in the group, because uh, a lot of these stories are his, um, climbing down the chimney of a baker and stealing the flour and the oil and all those kind of things. Uh, I think it was also the same child who um, made a laying decoy. So it's a, it's a, a, a wooden, uh, egg-shaped wooden thing that you put in a, in a hen's coop to help her to to lay more eggs and he would take it to the, to the local market and sell it <laughs> as a real egg, trying to get some other kind of thing. And so they're scrounging, just trying to survive. And this is the first instance really where we see criminality uh, amongst these children. Yeah, there's kind of minor 
hooliganism and things like that, but first seeing criminality, but it's really a criminality of survival because they're just so desperately hungry. And yet we look at the funding coming from, from Moscow to these schools and it's so far higher than you would see in any um, regular Soviet uh, orphanage or, or um, educational institution. When the war is ongoing, um, I think doing the math here, some of these children are aging into military service. So are, are they being brought into the Red Army or are they fighting like any other, you know, Soviet? Um, yeah, they, many, many of these boys desperately want to fight. And they immediately go to the recruiting station because, you know, this, this is a fight against Franco for them. It's not just a fight against Hitler. This is a fight against Franco and fascism and their, and their country. And this is what they've been preparing for these few years in the Soviet Union for. Um, but they're not allowed to initially. Um, the Spanish government, or excuse me, Spanish Communist Party um, is really insistent that they need to continue their education or their job training. Uh, but these kids are relentless. And so several of them do end up joining in the Red Army and going off to fight. And, and some of them end up uh, dying as well, including... Um, Dolores Ibarruri, the, the head of the Spanish Communist Party, her, her uh, son uh, ends up dying uh, in, uh, on the front lines. Uh, I think it's at the Battle of Stalingrad, actually. Um, so yeah, several of them are uh, joining, but even those who are either too young or not allowed or don't want to, just like every Soviet citizen, they're still joining the fight. So these kids are, are going out and foraging for medicinal uh, plants. They are all growing their own food wherever they're located. Um, the girls in particular are sewing things like socks and handkerchiefs for the soldiers at the front line. Um, they're tending local graves, uh, which is a thing. There's a, a, a movement called the Timur movement in, uh, in the Soviet Union where youth tend the graves of the, of the fallen. Um, so they're, they're doing all these things for the war effort, collecting scrap metal and paper that we see in a lot of other countries. Um, but it's interesting because they're doing it not in their own country, for their own country, but for an ally uh, of the country that they have lost. Um, when the war ends, uh, so you mentioned that schooling kind of ends at, at about age 14. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, you know, by like 47, 48, uh, 49, the, the last children would be reaching that age. So what was the, were there any government plans um, after that, right? Like, was, was the Soviet Union, you know, was the government like, okay, we're going to get them through school, and then they just joined society in a normal way? Yeah, so that was, you know, at, at, at least by 1939, when it was clear that they're not going back to, to a Republican Spain at that point, they started training them to be Soviet citizens, or at least Soviet residents. Um, and so that meant uh, a lot more Russian language training, um, but it also began during the war, a lot more, um, what we would call vocational training. Um, so getting them prepared for, for the labor beyond. So Soviet education is, um, from seven to 14. And then if you're academically inclined, you'd have another three years. So grades, uh, eight through 10. So there are two tracks really. So there's those that, um, immediately go into factory labor. And so they're grushki. These are kind of like study circles, uh, after school activities. Some of them would already been preparing them for that. So they'd be working in a, a wood shop um, or metalworking or uh, for the girls. Um, and this is where it is gendered in, in the Soviet case. They would be working in uh, handicrafts and textiles and things like that. 
Um, the second track would be those going on to higher education. And so it's been another three years in school and then go off to your university or a technical school, become a engineer, doctor, nurse, uh, something along those lines. There was a very brief experiment in 4041 before the war started in the Soviet Union of um, a transitionary stage between childhood and youth. So those who were 14 or had finished seventh grade, the, the last formal year that you had to attend, um, you went into another what they call a, a youth home for Spanish kids. And so half the day you were supposed to be learning, so going to classes, and the other half you'd be working in a nearby factory. Um, and so you're learning a trade, but you're also continuing your education at the same time. Um, once the war started in June 41, those uh, two schools for youth uh, were disbanded. But it looks like from the reports of those schools, they didn't work really well anyway, because um, many of the kids were just who were there weren't academically inclined anyway. They just wanted to go to work and make money. Um, and they used that money to buy cigarettes and alcohol and kind of all these things that both the communist parties of Spain and the Soviet Union, like, oh, what happened? We've gone so wrong. Um, but these are the kids who weren't really Sovietized because they were already older uh, when they had arrived uh, at the, uh, uh, or in the Soviet Union. So most of these uh, kids, you know, at, at 14 would go off to factories and they realized that um, particularly the older ones didn't know enough Russian. Um, they didn't know how a factory setting really worked in the Soviet Union. And so there was a, a government organization that came in to continue to help them out. Um, and so this meant additional language training. It meant some uh, additional skill training, but also meant providing stipends. Um, these kids couldn't, like most uh, Soviet adolescents, should stop saying kids at this point, um, they didn't have families. They didn't have, um, you know, two and three generation families in an apartment that could pool their resources for food. So the Spanish youth um, began to get stipends of a couple hundred rubles, which is fairly, fairly significant. Um, so they could buy food um, and, uh, and not have to starve. And of course they're eating in the, in the cafeteria as well. And it's caused some problems. Some of the Soviet citizens are saying, well, why are these Spaniards getting access to additional funds that our Soviet children are not? Um, can't quantify how much of that pushback there is from the Soviet citizen, but many of them, many of their letters made it into the archives uh, all the way in Moscow from some pretty far flung areas. Um, and so that notion that they had to continue with this um, disciplinary training, and I don't mean that in the sense of like hitting with a strap or something, but kind of how do you become Soviet? That continued even at the, uh, at the work site. Um, and then eventually when they um, come back to Moscow, um, certainly the younger ones come back to Moscow starting in 1944. That continues, they build a, a club called the Chikalov Club um, that's um, a place where they can um, meet and sing and speak in Spanish to some degree, eat, uh, but also then can do outreach. And so they're, they're performing um, Spanish plays for their Soviet friends and colleagues. Um, so there's, a, there's, a, there's always an attempt to try to help the Spanish refugees to integrate better into Soviet society. Um, but what I, what I argue in my book is that it, it creates a culture of dependency that some of the Spaniards can't, or they struggle to break out of. So that, that culture of dependency of being in a boarding school, right, where your entire life is, is framed by the boarding school, that then continues in the factory. 
So you're now an adult, you're on your own, but in the same way, you're still being uh, taken care of by the state and nurtured by the state. Um, and I think that it probably um, delayed some of their abilities to actually adapt to Soviet society because much of Soviet society is simply learning how to get by and learning how to uh, survive on your own. Okay. Thank you for talking to me today about this. This has been a very interesting conversation. Um, and uh, I think everybody will find it very interesting. Thank you, Wesley. I really appreciate you asking me on here. Um, and I can't wait to hear the podcast.